one of these late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddies where we discuss any media that is too bizarre of normal or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic Swamp. I'm Zach. I'm Ben. And has it ever occurred to you that I am a professional and I have my reasons? I love to use that quote to end our Martin Breast series because if everybody remembers when we started this with Hot Tomorrows, I don't think I used the quote, but one I did mention at the start of that episode was, I'm not mad at you, I just wish you weren't so fucking stupid. And that, we played that as that's what Zach said to Rob when he chose the Martin Breast series, and my response is, has it ever occurred to you that I am a professional and I have my reasons, Zach? And my reasons are, I love me a Martin Breast. <laughs> no doubt about that now. So, we have made it to the final episode. Uh, we're going to discuss one more movie. As I've been mentioning, I did watch The Others That Follow Midnight Run, which is our topic today, so we'll talk about that a little at the end. Uh, I'm very excited to give my ranking, but then we will have done it, another director in the books for Cinemodities, and uh, we can only hope that bringing attention to Martin Brest will pull him out of hiding, I think we've considered where he is. Exile. Exile, exile. yes, for the last... Self-imposed exile, maybe? The last 16, 17 years, and um, if, if he doesn't at least make another movie, he will uh, give us an interview type of thing. So, we are talking about Midnight Run. This is the movie that comes directly after uh, Beverly Hills Cop, which we discussed last week. It is in the same vein as Beverly Hills Cop, but as I'm sure we'll have to discuss, well, how does it compare as another action comedy to that film? So, I think I wanted to start by saying, Zach has not seen Beverly Hills Cop, I'm pretty sure, because he was not with that. With I've f- never seen that movie, period. Okay, okay. But you know the theme song, right? <laughs> no, the theme song? Yes, you know the theme song, Zach. Oh, well, no, actually, I'm glad, because every time we've talked about it, uh, you've laughed at how I call it cancer and how it plays every six minutes in the movie, and uh, I think you've repressed that, so that's fine. <laughs> oh, okay, I think I know what you're talking about now. Yes, I have repressed it, but I think I, ha- I have a memory. It might be a wrong memory, but there's a memory. Sure. I, I like that. I have a memory. It might be incorrect, but I have a memory. <laughs> so uh, this one, uh, Midnight Run, of course, I think is definitely not as well known as Beverly Hills Cop. Certainly didn't make as much money. Certainly didn't, you know, start a career like it did for Eddie Murphy. Um, but it's still fairly well known. You know, I think that this movie gets some attention and I've definitely heard about it. I think I was trying to remember for my own context, if I had seen this when I was younger, because this feels like it would have been something that played on TV, you know, uh, and I might have caught it, you know, uh, definitely maybe one of my first introductions to say Robert De Niro. But when I revisited it, you know, revisiting all of Martin Brest's movies, uh, I kind of got to this one and I was a little worried about it because, of course, as our audience knows, uh, we think Beverly Hills Cop is an absolutely horrendous movie. And Martin Brest continuing on going into another action comedy even though in a little different vein from Beverly Hills Cop, you know, is he going to fall into those same traps? And I have to say, when I watch this fully, um, I definitely don't think it's a perfect movie. I definitely don't think it's, like, a fantastic movie. 
But it's fun. I think this is good fun. And I think if you compare it to Beverly Hills Cop, it is like infinitely better than that movie because there's actually something going on in Midnight Run. And even if it's not the greatest, as I'm sure we'll talk about, I think the script is a little weak. It at least has things fleshed out that are aren't there in Beverly Hills Cop. So I I have to ask you, Ben, now that we've we've seen our two Martin Brest action comedies uh, what do you think of Midnight Run, and uh, how do you think it compares to bum 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 bum? I honestly, I I think that this movie was good. Like it, I enjoyed watching it. It was good fun. I mean, as such, that means it's infinitely better than Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it great that in a buddy comedy, the buddies' relationship is actually fleshed out and doesn't doesn't just happen eventually? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think that I would ever call Beverly Hills Cop a buddy comedy. Yeah, I know. That's what we talked about. The buddies are technically Eddie Murphy and Judge Reinhold, but Judge Reinhold doesn't do anything till the last five minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah, they're not buddies. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Midnight Run, it was good. It's fun. I, I like the Duke. I like uh, fucking, what's his name? The main character guy. Oh, Robert De Niro. <laughs> yeah, Robert, yeah, Robert De Niro. Main De Niro. character guy, yes. <laughs> Danny DeVito was the only thing that was coming to mind. You know, I got the death sound, but um, well, that, this movie with Danny DeVito as a as like a guy catching uh, the bail jumpers would be fantastic. <laughs> so it should have happened. But no, Jack Walsh, an enjoyable character. I mean, I don't know. Overall, I think I definitely enjoyed it. It's like you said, it's well fleshed out in in some ways that Beverly Hills Cop can only dream of. I, I understood the motivations of the characters at most points <laughs> in the movie. Uh, the characters also seem to have motivations. Yes, yes. So, wasn't it great to have a score in a movie? Like, like remember those long stretches of Beverly Hills Cop that was just silence and dialogue? Isn't it great to actually have like music? <laughs> this movie was not uncomfortable to watch in the way that Beverly Hills Cop was. Yes, and that's probably why. Yeah, that that's a, a big part to it. So, I, I do want to talk a lot about that comparison as well, um, and I think that's how we can. Uh, you know, fill Zach in with Beverly Hills Cop. But, but Zach, I got to ask you, was this something you ever knew about uh, when you were younger, or was this kind of your first go at Midnight Run? Um, no. <clears throat> when you first proposed this, Rob, I'm like, oh, man, we're finally going to cover the Dexie's Midnight Runner song, Come On Eileen. I was so excited. <laughs> I'm like, finally giving that song to do. It's deserved for the last, like, 30 years. No, but in all seriousness, though, I didn't. I've never heard of this movie. I was not even aware of it. Um, like when Rob proposed this series, a lot of these movies, like I kind of just had a faint notion of, like mm-hmm. Scent of a Woman. Uh, I think I made last year the joke in our Gili episode. Like it's just like it's the Hua movie. Um, I never really knew who Martin Brest was even as a filmmaker until we started like delving into Gili. He was just kind of like, oh, like, like he was more of a factoid. Like, oh, that's the guy who directed Beat Joe Black. And moving on. Um, so I had no idea about this, even like like last week's movie with Going in Style, or I, I, I guess not technically last week's, but you get my drift. <laughs> but like a lot of this stuff, like I've become just more idea that like that Martin Brest helped cement a lot of Hollywood in the 80s, mm-hmm. maybe unintentionally. 
because even like watching this, like there's there's a lot of stuff in this. And I think we'll definitely get into this more as the conversation unfolds. But like kind of like Ben said, this was this was fun. Um, yes, this feels like a real movie. I can't remember the last time we watched like a genuine movie and not just some sort of just like, oh, God, like more of just like a plot. Like that's what going in style felt like. It felt more just like an idea as opposed to a story. Sure. Like, oh, what would it be like if a bunch of like elderly men robbed a bank? This felt like an actual story. But the one thing I do have to say is that like where Ben thought this was fun. I will mirror that sentiment, but I'll say it was fun but tedious. Tedious in uh, uh, in what way? Like kind of the back and forth of um, of the Duke. Well, that's that's the thing. Like kind of like how it's 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 a juggling act, and it's just like oh, now he's with De Niro. Nope, he's with was it you called? Oh God, what's his name? John Ashton. Yeah, yeah. It's like oh, now he's back with the. And it's like oh my God, please stop. I'm like I get this is the plot, and this is like one of those things why I hate like road trip movies when there's like an objective. I just don't like that. It reminds me of like what was it? Planes, trains, and automobiles, and like the the horrible remake with Robert Downey Jr. Like where it's just like it's it's like gags just happening because we need something to happen. Sure. The thing that kind of saves this though is that like it's genuine. It's competently made. There's fantastic chemistry amongst everybody. Um, and it has a pretty great climax that's pretty tension filled. Like you go from kind of like this like like comedy. With some slapstick elements, then the last, like, ten minutes, we get, like, almost a thriller. Where it's like, oh my god, like, what is going to happen? Like, like you have all these variables that kind of just converge at the end. And I guess that's kind of what makes the jumbled, the jumbled parts of it earlier on worth it. There mm-hmm. is a pretty good payoff. Um, but no, to answer your original question, I had literally no idea what this film was about until Rob's like, Zach, <laughs> we're doing Martin Brest. And I'm like, oh God. I'm like, like, what sort of nonsense am I getting involved with after I watched Hot Tomorrows? <laughs> sure, sure. I'm actually glad you mentioned plane trains and automobiles because I, at a certain point watching this for this recording, I was like, this kind of is the action version of planes, trains, and automobiles. And then, of course, Todd Phillips wanted Due Date to be the action version of planes, trains, and automobiles, but it fails miserably. Did you Did you ever see Due Date, Zach? I did. I uh, did. Ben, have you seen Due Date, where Robert Downey Jr. and Zach Galifianakis basically go on a road trip? Because, what, Robert Downey Jr. has to get to the birth of his son, I think the yep. premise is? Yep. yep. Yeah. And, Zach, and Zach Galifianakis has a dog. That's the plot of the movie. Yes, yeah. Uh, Todd Phillips is like, Zach Galifianakis, be as flamboyant as possible. <laughs> and that that movie was definitely, I, I could not stand that movie. Because that tried to have a lot of action. Like, I think there's a scene in that where, what, Zach Galifianakis is driving, and for some reason he ends up, like, crossing the border, and they have drugs or something, and Robert Downey Jr. gets, like, captured by the border police, and Zach Galifianakis breaks him out by literally, like, hooking the trailer he's in to his car, and it's, like, very over the top. And I'm like, this is just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, Todd Phillips... Not the greatest, I would say. But but anyway, I kind of see where you're coming from, Zach, with the tediousness. You know, this is a full two-hour movie. Um, there is a lot of that back and forth of like, oh, who has the Duke now and stuff like that. But I, I kind of was okay with it because I really like that there's so many different parties involved in this. And we kind of get to see them all develop and interact. Like you got, what, De Niro and the Duke. You got uh, uh, Joe Pantoliano as the, the bail bondsman. You got the mafia people. You got the FBI. And so I kind of liked how they all were coming together interacting. Could have been cut down? Probably. But that didn't bother me uh, too much about this. And I do have to say, I like that they spend a lot of time on developing the relationship between our two main characters, De Niro and um, Charles Grodin, the Duke. 
Until we get that very strange scene where the Duke is like, you ever have sex with an animal, Jack? <laughs> Remember those chickens on the Indian reservation? That's the one part in the movie where I'm like, where is this coming from? <laughs> Did you ever have sex with an animal, Jack? Remember those chickens around the Indian reservation? There's some good-looking chickens there, Jack. You know, between us. Yeah, a couple of them might have taken a shot at <laughs> It was it was there, everybody going like Rob. I want you to like I want you to juxtapose. Eh, juxtapose. I can't say that word. Just, <laughs> thank you, thank you, Ben. Thank you. Um, <laughs> at this point, going forward, when I say that word, I just want Rob to insert Ben saying it for me. I want that scene, and then following that, the one from Gili, where Jennifer Lopez is doing yoga, explaining to Ben Affleck how like the vagina is the most erotic organ like on the human body. Yes. yes. Like it's the same <laughs> level of just like what. Is that like? Did, did somebody write this? I'm like, 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 oh man, it's like cocaine's a hell of a drug, and <laughs> and that's kind of like, that's what it reminded me of. I'm like, oh, so Martin Brest was always crazy. He just hit it better back in the day. Sure, sure, yeah, I I definitely think so. Especially now seeing all his movies, there's he has a certain level of craziness to him. Um, and then it all comes out. You know, the floodgates open in Gigli, and then he goes into exile. So. Speaking of, of once again, the, the Beverly Hills Cop, I know we mentioned it already that the all of the relationships and motivations are fleshed out better. The thing that I, I definitely liked a lot more in this movie is that De Niro, even though he's very similar to Eddie Murphy in the sense that he's like lying to people, he's conniving to get what he wants, you know, to, to get do his job and stuff like that, at least he faces some resistance during the course of this movie. Like, at least he has problems to face, where every single time Eddie Murphy has to face a problem, he just immediately gets out of it. And that's the thing that drove us crazy last week with that movie. But I, I did have to kind of notice, Ben, that there's a very similar kind of uh, parallel in our De Niro and Eddie Murphy characters, because at the beginning of the movie, in Midnight Run, De Niro steals uh, Yafet Kodo's uh, FBI badge, and then he just kind of uses that to get what he wants for most of the time. But it's a way yeah. better dynamic that even though he's using the FBI badge to get what he wants, he's then facing resistance from something not related to that. And, like, I love that scene where he takes Charles Grodin on the airplane and he's like, you know, he tells everybody that he's the FBI agent. But then Charles Grodin freaks out and, you know, nobody's going to let him fly then. So at least there's some something that's going on there. Where if this was Beverly Hills Cop 2, say, you know— Eddie Murphy would have the FBI badge. He would show it to the airline people. Um, they would be like, okay, you know, you have a prisoner. Charles Grodin would freak out. Eddie Murphy would show him the FBI badge, and Charles Grodin would, like, fall asleep for no reason, and they would just fly on the plane. And then the theme song would play for 60 minutes straight, and that would be the end of the movie. <laughs> that, that's pretty accurate, I think, if, if we were going to turn this into Beverly Hills Cop 2. And I also like, like, there's a point where he has to give his real name because he's dealing with his credit card, but but then he tries to show the badge, and the lady's like, that's not the name on that badge. <laughs> yeah, and she's like, do you want me to call the FBI? And then he just has to like start finding cash to give her. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was... I, I agree with you. He he was uh, definitely challenged more throughout the movie. Um, and, I mean, obviously, like like you've already said, he, he loses the Duke several times, so, I mean, he's definitely facing obstacles. Uh, the one thing that I found... And it's not necessarily about the main character. It's just about every character. 
It, everybody in this movie was capable of like one hit knocking somebody out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And I was like, I, I have, I've hit people. I've been hit. It is difficult to knock somebody out. And if you knock them out, like, I mean, this is the cliche shit. Like, if you knock them out for an extended period of time, like it's a bad thing for their health. <laughs> um, so like. That was just something that movies relied on. I can forgive that, but the fact that it's so damn easy to yeah. knock people out was a little, uh, I don't know. It just it was like, I get it. They're using it to move the plot along, whatever. They could have, he could have had a taser or something. Or, I, don't know, what, I definitely picked up, I started to pick up on that more as the movie went on, because of course it happens more and more. But I think one of the last times it happens is when um, the other bounty hunter, John Ashton, who was also in Beverly Hills Cop. He's the, uh, the by-the-book L.A. police yeah, officer. And, you know, even though these movies are four years apart, John Ashton looks so much older and raggedier in this movie. And I'm sure that had something to do with, you know, He's styling his... heavier. Yeah, styling his character and stuff. But at the, near the end of the movie, when that guy has the Duke... And, you know, he's, he says something like, uh, I'm going to get you on this plane and we're going to go to L.A. and I'm going to get my – or Vegas to get my money from Dennis Farina. And Charles Grodin tries to pull the, you know, I can't fly on planes. He just straight punches him in the temple and he's like, sleep through the flight, you know? And I'm just like, okay, I guess that's that's where we are in this movie. And you're right, Ben. It's just to move the plot along. But that one – he just literally is just like a very weak punch because it's not even, I think, like filmed as a stunt very well. And he just kind of like bops him on the temple, and Charles Grodin just like passes out. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, if you hit somebody in the temple hard enough to make him pass out, you're probably going to kill him. Um, <laughs> so I mean, what, whatever, we can forgive it because it's obviously just just to move things forward. But yeah, it, the one the one scene where that didn't really happen, it wasn't just a straight one hit knockout, is when um, the same bounty hunter that you're talking about when he gets i guess betrayed by the by the mobsters mm-hmm. whenever they see in the picture like so he, he's showing off a, a picture like oh look i have him it's he has a newspaper that you can't read at all that probably indicates that this was taken today <laughs> yeah but then there's also towels in the background that are really big say the name of the hotel <laughs> and they're like this allows us to find out what room he's in so we don't need this guy anymore and uh and they put a little more effort into beating him up in yeah, that scene. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I have to say I love that specific scene because when I like first watched this maybe a few months ago just because I found it and I was like, oh, Martin Brest, stuff like that. Like you see him with, with the Polaroid camera take the picture of Charles Grodin. And in that scene when he's taking the picture, you can see the towels that just say Blue Angel Motel. And then it comes up, like, immediately after. I love that little touch. But I also love the whole character of John Ashton as just being a bumbling idiot. Like, Robert De Niro gets him with the, hey, look over there, fake out, like, three times in this movie. (laughs) Well, like, the only time he doesn't get him is when... It's right at the end, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, like, you know, in, in the same vein, this guy being a bumbling idiot, there's this point where he finds Jack Walsh and the Duke... After, I think they were in a truck and they were like off roading and shit. And then they, yeah. And all the cops are like fall, following them off roading and flipping their vehicles over for some reason. <laughs> and and then the the bounty hunter finds them. He's like, "Am I am I uh, lucky or am I just good?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was one thing. Is like he may have been a bumbling idiot, but he was able to find Jack Walsh repeatedly. Yeah, yeah. I it is it is kind of like he's he's good at his job. He just 
is not as good as Robert De Niro. At least that's how the movie makes it out to be, it seems. Well, in we kind of get, like, Eddie, Eddie Moscone, Moscone, however you pronounce it. Yep. He, different people pronounce it differently in the movie, so that's... <laughs> He's Joe Pantoliano. That's, that's, that's who I know him as. <laughs> like, Jerry, the, the secretary guy, pronounces it Moscone, and, and De Niro pronounces it Moscone, or Moscone, or whatever. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, so at that, like, at the beginning, he, the first, one of the first things we hear him say to Jack is, like, that he's the best or whatever, which is yeah. shortly after Jerry saying like, Oh, you actually caught somebody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then later we of course hear him say that to the other bounty hunter that he's, that the other bounty hunter is the best and that Jack is fucking things up again. So I, I don't think that we know anything about how good of a bounty hunter anybody is because <laughs> Eddie Moscone just lies to everybody. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Lies and screams at everybody. <laughs> oh yeah. And tries to not pay them. Yep. So as – because you bring it up, I wanted to make this other comparison to uh, Beverly Hills Cop. I have to explain it to Zach because we, we discussed it for I think a little bit last week, Ben. But there is a scene at the end when like all the police are showing up to the mobster's house in Beverly Hills Cop and we get an extended shot – of like one cop car runs in or like stops or runs into the van that they're trying to get away in. And then we just see like, it's something like eight or nine other cop cars just continually rear end the cop cars in front of them. Like they just, just for no reason, like they just don't stop. It's just a chain of rear ending. And we get an extended shot of this. And Ben and I are like, are these people stupid? Like, did they not have brakes? Like you can see what's going on. You're driving on a straight line. (laughs) I have to say, when all the cops are, you know, chasing and going off-roading and they're chasing De Niro and the Duke, that's some good car carnage. Like, I like some of that action. Like, that's a reason to damage some cars because the cops aren't being stupid. They're just not built to off-road and there's no real road to follow. And I liked that. They're kind of being stupid because he is being followed by a helicopter. So it's not like they're going to lose him and... They do make police vehicles that are made for off-roading, so like they oh, could have sure. caught in some of those. But oh yeah, no, they're just like they're all the, the Crown Victorias, and they're just like everybody go for it, you know. <laughs> but but I did I did like during that car carnage, like one of the cops, I guess sees how steep something is and like tries to turn left to not go down it, and then another cop hits him in the side and rolls him down it. Yeah, but yeah, that was great. Like some of that was well well orchestrated and. Um, uh, well choreographed, I yeah. guess. Yeah. And it's I definitely think it's better than the opening scene of Beverly Hills Cop where it's just, here's a bunch of cars stationary and we're going to have a truck knock them like against the road. And we're also going to have, what, is that Eddie Murphy? Is that the dude's name? We're going to have him be oh, yes. comple- completely swinging invincible yeah. <laughs> and swinging around and not flying out of the truck. And like, yep. yeah, that was like, I really, I, I don't know. You may have made this joke during the episode. Like they should have just shown him fly out of the vehicle and then shown him in the vehicle yes, again. that was our parody <laughs> creation for that movie. Where in like a wide shot, we see the stunt person just fly off the, the chain and then we get an, a d- direct cut to a close-up shot of Eddie Murphy still <laughs> hanging on and that happens like four times. That was our, our parody version of Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> and it would have been just as compelling yes. as, as, what we, as what we did watch. That being said, that there were similarities in feel and feel between these two movies like there were times where i was like this feels very similar to to beverly hills cop but it's just like done better 
Sure. And maybe that's the difference between like not having a score and having a score. It's like when without the music in Beverly Hills Cop, like you kind of feel like you're eavesdropping on people and shit. Because <laughs> like, why else would you be hearing them? They're not hearing you, and there's no music playing. That's yeah. some shady shit. It, it is very strange. Yeah, Zach, it is absolutely weird where you have like 15 to 20 minute chunks in Beverly Hills Cop with no score and it is completely silent and then it'll be like characters go here they talk they go somewhere else they talk it's been silent for two scenes 15 minutes and then they get in a car and the theme song plays (laughs) and then it goes back to silence it is the strangest thing and that's a good way to put it Ben is that you feel like you're eavesdropping like you're watching something you really shouldn't be watching (laughs) well and you know, to be fair, you really shouldn't be watching Beverly Hills Cop. So, <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. The film is trying to telegraph what you shouldn't be doing. That's right. Okay. And audiences do, didn't listen. <laughs> do something else, anything really. Smoke cigarettes. That do that. Yeah. That, so that is another similarity, and that just probably a, a, an artifact of the times. Tons of fucking cigarette smoke. Oh, this, the amount of smoking in this film is nothing short of delightful. Um, <laughs> And, and like I, I don't know. I have to. I have to say, like I enjoyed some of the various interactions around cigarettes, and like the one bumbling idiot bounty hunter. He's just like, be careful with your cigarettes around that guy. He'll steal your cigarettes, and then he'll take them to Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh that, yeah, that it, was, is, it is. We're we're just on like a a cigarette, you know, just kick with with a. Even in a, on the Patreon, we did Matchstick Men. Everybody smokes in that movie. And then yeah. this, everybody is constantly smoking. And, you know, I just wanted some C. I was hoping that when, like, Robert De Niro and the Duke show up to Robert De Niro's ex-wife's house, that she'd be just smoking for some reason. Oh, I just that would be see- great if, <laughs> if his daughter was smoking. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, the four-year-old kid, whatever, like, the little boy's just smoking a cigarette when he answers the door. That would have been great. The daughter comes now, out with all the money, and she's like, Daddy, this this is my cigarette cash. <laughs> and he's like, no, I can't take that. You need those cigarettes. <laughs> if you don't have them, you'll die. That would have been perfect, because even, even De Niro says that to the Duke. They're at a diner, and he's like, we only have, like, 13 bucks, and you're buying cigarettes? And De Niro's like, I need these cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, that I think that would be great. We should uh, we should put together a parody for this one as well, and it just involves a lot of little kids smoking. <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> well, so I definitely since we since we brought this scene up, whenever that the daughter first comes around the corner, like the look on her face, I thought she was going to go into like a violent rage against her dad. And she'd be like, I fucking hate you, you deadbeat piece of shit. You've been gone for ten years. Like I totally like she just looked. Like, she was going to burst into tears, and I assumed it was going to be angry tears. Yeah, they, they definitely, like, emphasize the pause when she shows up. And, I, and when I watched this recording, I was like, what's going to happen, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, and then you just get Robert De Niro, like, trying not to be a child molester, hugging a kid he doesn't really know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know, and that, was, like, that was great. He did a good, uncomfortable dad hug. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> Uh, like, there's no reason I shouldn't expect you to to bite me when I try to hug you. Oh, that's good. I like the idea of characterizing hugs on different levels and one of them being like the type of hug you give someone hoping that they don't bite you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I mean, yeah. Some people you want them to bite you. That one you don't. <laughs> it's just 
What kind of hug do you give someone that you want them to bite you, Ben? Like, like, what, like, how do you do you, that? You hug them with your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> you, you bite them first. That's like a vampire hug. Uh, yeah. I mean, or a chupacabra hug. Whatever. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> so, speaking of De Niro, um, this was something that I didn't really know until I did my research because, of course, this movie was 1988 before. All of us were alive. I think we were all dead at the time of this movie coming out. Yeah, so you were all dead. I mean, yeah, that's how it it's definitely. If you're not alive, you're dead, Ben. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> it's binary. So something that, you know, when we grew up, you know, we kind of, you know, maybe knew De Niro as a serious actor, but then he's more of a comedian. Like when what, Meet the Parents in uh, the Analyze This and That movies. I, I didn't know until researching for this movie, this is his first like comedy ever. Like, he was straight, like, serious actor for his whole career. Um, he's Al Capone in The Untouchables the year before this. And this is the first time he was ever comedic. And I was trying to think of this performance in that perspective, but I just kind of know De Niro as a comedy person now from, you know, Meet the Parents, Meet the Fockers, all those. I'm, I don't even know if he's in all those movies. There's got to be, like, 20 of those now. But it was just so strange to, to read that and be like, this was kind of his a big switch in his career, which is really, really interesting because I think he owns it. Like, I mean, he is pretty funny in some, like, uh, scenes. I really like at the end when he's talking to Yafet Kodo, and he's like, you're going to get 10 years in prison for impersonating a federal officer. And De Niro's like, you get 10 years for that? How come nobody's come for you yet? And I'm like, that's a great burn. <laughs> But yeah, I, w I was kind of uh, pleasantly surprised to see that this kind of kicked off De Niro's comedic career, which unfortunately I think he's more known for. I don't know, has he? I guess the War what? with Grandpa. The War, yeah, the war with Grandpa. Grandpa's out now. I Before, like, the Meet the Fockers and stuff, like, I remember him being, like, a gangster in a lot of movies or, like, a a mob person, okay. something like a that. A criminal. But he was always a criminal. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know like any specifics about any of those things that was just always kind of the vibe i had from him and then the fact like you bringing up that he is in a lot of comedy movies recently like that that feels weird to me because i typically think of him as a criminal oh okay interesting interesting i mean I, I haven't i didn't see heat until like a year ago but he's criminal in that he's very very comedic even though he's a criminal he is very comedic in jackie brown if you remember that performance zach that is a oh yeah That's very performance very funny performance that fantastic scene where the girl is like making fun of him because he can't find where where he parked the car, and the yep. girl's like, "Where'd you park the car? Where'd you park the car?" and being really annoying, so he just shoots her point blank in the parking lot. It's hilarious. <laughs> Which came first, Jackie Brown or Analyze This? Jackie Brown was ninety seven. Analyze This is ninety nine. Oh, okay. Analyze so That, that Jackie... is two thousand two. Okay. So Jackie Brown was first. Okay. Did he do any other comedic roles between between Midnight Run and Jackie Brown? Oh my god, he's been in so many goddamn movies. <laughs> I know, it's it's disgusting. He he doesn't say no anymore. He's a paycheck actor now. I mean, he was in a lot of movies back in the early 2000s. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's a yeah, there's a reason we know him for sure. No, it doesn't well, I don't know all these movies, but like he's in Goodfellas, of course, after Midnight Run. That's that's totally a comedy. Cape Fear, <laughs> total comedy. Well, oh yeah, that's <laughs> Are you sure that Goodfellas oh. isn't a movie about pizza? <laughs> <laughs> it's about pizza and it's a comedy because we know we have that scene where the guy says, how am I funny? Like funny like a clown? <laughs> <laughs> 
Rob, you are right. Cape Fear is a comedy. Yes. Womp. Um, <laughs> talk about another movie with a, with a weird like music sting in it. Womp, 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 womp. Yeah, of the movies that I know, I I don't think he's very he's in any other comedic things uh, after Midnight Run. That's interesting. And then that's all he would do like for the last twenty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And oh yeah, that's I mean, what, and then what recently? What the uh, he's in the Irishman, right? Yeah. Bro, did you ever see Dirty Grandpa? I uh, think I did see Dirty Grandpa. Was Zach was Zach Efron? Yeah. Okay. Oh, and Aubrey Aubrey Plaza, Plaza wants to have sex and, with an old and man. Kendrick, yes, and Kendrick. <laughs> oh, oh my god, that's oh my god, that's such a weird. That, like I watched that movie, and some of those movies are like I hated every single moment of the movie and myself as I watched it. <laughs> but like I just couldn't look away. I just couldn't look away. I'm like, yeah, that is a. And it's not even like that's the thing. It's like it's. I don't know how you can read that script and just be like, okay, I'm gonna do this. Yeah, I I would agree. Even the money, like even at this point, he must have enough money. Uh, is there such a thing? I when you're <laughs> Robert De Niro, yes, I think there is. <laughs> no, that so that's doesn't need more money. When you when you bring that up, when you guys bring that up, I definitely you know for some reason I guess I thought of him as comedic. But he he has done majorly you know more serious roles even before and after Midnight Run, so that's a that's interesting. I guess it was just what I saw him in a lot when I was younger because like the Meet the Fockers and stuff like that. Well, my first my first time introduced to him was Meet the Parents. Okay, okay, yeah, that was probably I'm guessing the first time I really recognized him, you know, and yeah, well, that's even, the first time I ever saw him. Anything. Even when he's comedic, he is playing it you know pretty straight, straight, and and even in like you know the analyze this and that movie, he is the. He's the gangster, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, so that's that's and even one of my favorite uh, Scorsese movies, The King of Comedy. Like he tries to be a comedian, but he's just an absolutely crazy person. Like he comes off as psychotic, you know. Uh, and then Taxi Driver, of course. Well, Taxi Driver is a comedy because he tries to take his date to a uh, a porn theater, and she freaks out, and he goes, "You don't like porn? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody likes porn." <laughs> Taxi Driver was seventy one, right? Yes, it had to be early seventies, and that 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 same exact thing happens in the Graduate with Dustin Hoffman, like taking your date to like 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 a like a it's not a porno theater in the Graduate, but like it's what a burlesque or what a strip club. Yeah, yeah, something risque, definitely. Yeah, all right. I'm, for some reason, I, I, for a second there, I'm like, oh wait, but yes, <laughs> I don't know why those connected those two. I guess it's just that just like that time period in cinema. Sure, sure. I mean, I like I said though, I like De Niro in this movie, and I think I, I like him in pretty much everything else I've I've seen him in. It's it's not that he's not good; it's that the movie might be ridiculous, like the the bad grandpa type of thing, or the the meet the Fockers and and meet the parents. Oh, God, there's little Fockers, Rob. There's little Fockers. I have never seen that. I no I just know I just know that meet the parents is probably not aged well because they make fun of Ben Stiller's first name being Gaylord a lot. Yeah, Gaylord <laughs> Fokker. Yep. Yes, and so that that can't that can't end uh, can't have aged well at all. <laughs> I mean, other than De Niro, I mean, they we get kind of like a, a big cast in this. Of course, you know Yafet Kodo, Joe Pantoliano, uh, Charles Grodin. I don't know if he was huge by this time. I don't really know my Charles Grodin history. Dennis Farina, who doesn't love good old Dennis Farina? Uh, Mister Unsolved Mysteries, right, Zach? <laughs> boo, boo. Or uh, as we know him, Detective Joe Fontana from Law and Order. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so I, I did want to um, to bring up in this discussion something that I know I'm pretty sure we talked about in our Gili discussion when we were going through Martin Brest. But of course, it came up in my research for this because uh, 
it's specifically related to this movie. And I think once again, you know, this will put a perspective on Martin Brest, especially as we finish up his filmography. There was some interview that uh, Yafet Kodo talked about this film, and he started talking about De Niro and then goes into Martin Brest. And so this I I still find wildly interesting. And so I'll read the quote. I don't know if I read the whole thing in our Julie episode, but uh, I'm sure nobody remembers it if I did. (laughs) But Yafet Kodo said, De Niro is very spontaneous, and it always helps to work with an artist like that. But Marty Brest, hair director, shot so many takes of the scenes that I lost all joy in doing the film. It became hard and tedious work. Then he stopped eating during the shoot and became thinner and thinner each day until he looked like a ghost behind the camera. When I met Marty at the Universal Studio with De Niro, he looked healthy and strong. But as filming went on, he began to turn into someone you see in Dachau. Or Dachau. It was weird. I got sick, and for the whole of the film, I had a fever and was under the weather for most of it. I was shocked when it came off so funny. It sure wasn't funny making it. So I'm glad we get to talk about this, because I know when I did my whole... Uh, history of Martin Brest in our Gili discussion, it was really surprising to me that he was this specific of a director. And if Zach remembers, even the TV edit and the uh, the the commercial edit for airlines and stuff of Scent of a Woman, he wanted he put Alan Smithy on. He said, "I want nothing to do if you edit with that movie if you edit it." So this is the thing that I find very interesting because in the earlier movies, Hot Tomorrow is going in style. You definitely get that sense that. You know, Martin Brest has a very specific idea of what he's going for. This movie, I think Scent of a Woman, Meet Joe Black, you know, even Gigli, he's going for something. I, I, I find it so strange that a director with this much attention to detail and this kind of, you know, crazy in the sense of this stopped eating during shoot and stuff like that could do something like Beverly Hills Cop because it seems so empty and so vacuous that if you'd, you'd think that you know, as we talked about in this discussion, Ben, that there's that silence. There's that, you know, there's no real consequences. We have all these these weird occurrences in the movie that make it awkward and, and empty. It, it kind of, it's weird to think that in some sense he wanted that and he chose that. Certainly it worked out for him. It made, you know, so much money and gave him a career in Hollywood. But I find that so intriguing because that movie is so significantly different from the rest of his filmography that he just kind of had this one instance where he was like, I am demanding, but in a completely different way, if that makes sense. I think the issue comes down to is that with any Martin Brest film, is there a philosophical like core to it? Okay, sure. Yeah, like, of course. Thing, like, like, obviously, yeah, like, I think at this point, Rob, like, well, I've only seen half of Meet Joe Black. And <laughs> I'm not see, I've not seen Beverly Hills Cop. But, like, do any of these films have, like, a statement they're trying to declare? Like, that's the thing, is that, like, Hot Tomorrow's probably is the closest. Definitely. But considering that was such an early product of his, it's hard to be like, okay, you could almost chalk that up to being, like, an outlier. Like, going in style, like, we kind of discussed that, was like, well, what's the point of this film? And it's like, well, is it is it a thing about, like, like the government? Is it a thing about old age? Is it like we we couldn't even kind of definitively point out what the point of the movie? Yeah, is. we we had some ideas, but we couldn't point it out. Um, yeah, Mid- then like Midnight Beverly Hills Run- Cop. Mi- oh, right. that's that's the thing. So you know, Midnight Run. I definitely get the sense that there's this theme of, I maybe to sum it up very succinctly, incorruptibility in Martin Bre- and uh, De Niro's character, where you know he he didn't take the the bribe when he was the cop, all that stuff that you know kind of exists throughout the whole film. I mean, Scent of a Woman, Meet Joe Black. 
Meet Joe Black's a tough one because that movie is so excruciating. Um, Scent of Woman, I do think there's something there. Gili, the Baywatch. I would yes, say, the, I would yes, say, the Baywatch <laughs> is the meaning of Gili. I would say that Beverly Hills Cop, and I'm interested to see what you think about this, Ben. There, there's no real. Well, no, actually, what we discussed about it is it, it might be remembering our discussion, Ben. It's the opposite of Midnight Run. Midnight Run, our main character, is incorruptible. He doesn't take bribes. He does the right thing. And then he even has to be, like, you know, convinced in his own sense of beliefs to take that money from the Duke at the end. Because the Duke's like, it's not a payoff. You've already let me go. Like, this is a gift. This is a gift of our journey. And so Robert De Niro is incorruptible. If anything, the point of Beverly Hills Cop is everybody is corruptible. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because that's the thing, Zach. The end of the movie, Ben and I had the big part of our discussion. We were going, should we feel good that Eddie Murphy took all the by-the-book cops and made them lie for him in the end? <laughs> so these, these movies actually might be the polar opposites of each other. One is vacuous and empty and boring. One is fun and exciting, and they have completely different meaning about corruptibility. <laughs> Maybe. That's, in, that's interesting. Mean, that's, that sounds, sounds about right to me. <laughs> yeah, and then I Gili's the other tough one because I don't there know. Is, uh, yeah, family. Insanity. No, it's family, Insan- Zach. <laughs> sure, let's call it that. <laughs> because because they learn to love ment- mentally handicapped Justin Bartha, and Ben Affleck convinces a lesbian to to date him. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's family. <laughs> oh God, what would he make next? Martin Brest, hit us up. Let us know what's what you got in the works. Rob, remember, that's your goal. you got to track them down next time you're in New York. <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. Oh, speaking of locations, I, I, I put this in my notes near the end, so I missed it. John Ashton. I couldn't find um, actual, like, corroboration for this, but according to his Wikipedia, he lives in Fort Collins, Colorado. Wow. So I should try – and he's, he's, he's older. He's much older, of course, than, you know, uh, when this movie – and he's, he's still around, but i got to go find him. You know, I got to break quarantine and go find John Ashton and be like, John Ashton, you're great in Midnight Run. You're terrible in Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> I've never seen you in anything else. <laughs> Do you have Martin Brest's phone, a- phone number or address? That would be the thing. Like, I'd have to play it as like, you know, you know uh, where Martin Brest is? Because I-, I can't get to Ben Affleck. <laughs> What you do, I gotta dress up as uh, Anna de Armas, and then just uh, Ben Affleck will find you. It'll be like the South Park episode with Cartman and Jennifer Lopez. Yes, yes, exactly. Just, just tell your tell tell the world that your hand is Anna de Armas, and Ben Affleck will come. <laughs> oh man! So I I did also so yeah that was the thing about Martin Brest that I want to talk about that he's so demanding and exacting, and then you know in, it it's just so weird to think of his filmography. In that sense. But I, I also wanted to mention, because we talked about him briefly, uh, I do love me a good Joe Pantoliano performance. And he is fantastic in this movie. I have to say I love the scene where De Niro's on the payphone and he's on the phone in like the, uh, the, the market across the street. And they're just screaming at each other. And it's great attention to detail because Joe Pantoliano is just screaming at, in this market. Well, one, he picks up the phone from, like, the dude working at the restaurant. And he's like, it's for me, and just grabs the phone from him. And then as he's screaming, you see everybody in the background turn and stare at him. Like, he is clearly making a scene. And they just go back and forth. Excuse me. Oh, yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. I think it's for me. Check it out. 
Jack, that you? Listen, I need you to wire me 500 to the Western Union office in Amarillo, Texas, right away. Wait a minute, what do you need with $500 on a bus? And why the fuck aren't you on a plane? Did it ever occur to you that I am a professional and that I might have my reasons? We are driving now, and I only have enough cash to get to Amarillo. We had to scrap the bus. Fuck the bus! I want to know what happened to the goddamn plane! He doesn't like to fly. He doesn't like to fly? What the fuck does that mean? Listen to me, Jack. You gotta be back here in less than two and a half fucking days. A half million dollars of my money. What the fuck is going on there? Eddie, 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 I swear to God, don't start with me now or I will shoot him and I will dump him in a fucking swamp. I am in no fucking mood for this. Just send me the money and I'll have him back by the deadline. You hear me? Yes. And it's just fantastic. Like, Joe Pantoliano needs to scream more. I mean, don't get me wrong, he's great as, like, Cypher in The Matrix, but I want to see him just let loose and scream a lot more. He does it fantastically in this movie. <laughs> I one of, one of my favorite lines, You got the Duke! You got the Duke! Jack Walsh got the Duke! So what's that all about? Jerry Walsh got the Duke! Walsh got the Duke? He got him! He got the Duke! And he's talking, Ben, about the Duke of Nuts. <laughs> <laughs> is that our next parody of this movie we have a lot of kids smoking cigarettes and then charles groden's character the duke is played by the animated duke of nuts from adventure time <laughs> that could work and instead of instead of stealing the 15 million from the mob he's stealing all what is it i think it's pudding from princess bubblegum is why he gets in trouble he's eating all the he's like so zach just so you know there's an episode of adventure time where the duke of nuts is f- literally uncontrollably addicted to pudding i'm pretty sure it's pudding <laughs> yeah to be honest i don't remember it's been a long time since i've seen <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> yeah yeah we're watching that one tonight oh boy but so that's what we need we need hardcore animated duke of nuts uncontrollably eating pudding during this movie <laughs> i mean i don't see why not zach's on board <laughs> zach is confused no joe joe pantliano's fantastic in this movie um i i do like his little bit at the end where he finally he he gets his comeuppance of you know de niro calls him at the la airport and he's like i got the duke and i can make the drop off but fuck you you snake you know you've cheated everyone in this movie so yeah. I'm letting him go and that type of thing. And it's like, I like that he doesn't get, you know, involved with that whole trade-off with the mob at the end. Because he's like this almost tertiary character where he just is, his whole character is like sitting in his place of business waiting for the phone to ring. And then finally the phone rings and it's like, you're screwed. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, his whole motivation is that he has to send out bounty hunters to get to get this guy back because he's gonna lose four hundred and fifty thousand dollars if he doesn't. Yep. But then he does like the dumbest thing possible, and he sends out a bounty hunter to interrupt another bounty hunter, which can only make the process more difficult and less likely to succeed. Yes, that was the one thing I really wanted in the script of this movie. Like for all the times that he that he yells at De Niro, he's like, "You fucked it up. You screwed this up. You know, I had to send someone else out there. I just wanted De Niro to scream like, "Don't you think you caused this? Like, like John Ashton, you know, like fucked me up so many times. Like, don't you realize this was your fault?" Yeah, I mean, like, what? At least a day and a half of his delays were due to to that other bounty yeah. hunter. Yeah, because if he if if Joe Pantoliano never calls uh, John Ashton, the credit card never gets canceled. Oh, and they yeah. and they probably get to LA with a day or two to spare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big time. I mean, because well, they were they were on a train. Nobody knew where they were. Yep. If it hadn't been for him calling in that other bounty hunter, he never would have gotten off of that train, which never would have led to the phone calls that led the mob to them. Like, 
Yeah, it would have been such a yeah. so like, it would have been smooth sailing. Yeah, and that, and that's why I like he gets his comeuppance at the end because he is a villain because he puts so many obstacles in the way of our main characters, and he's not s- smart enough. He's too stupid to to realize that it's his fault. <laughs> and of course, the mob's chasing after the stuff too. But Joe Pantoliano knows that. Like, he knows that the mob is after the Duke because he's, he's in the papers. Like, he's always like, don't you read the papers and that stuff. But when he gave the job to De Niro, he should have been like, you know, the mob's going to be after you, but I think you can handle this. And just let him do his job. He's good at his job. <laughs> well, so, so something else, like, I don't know if this was explicitly stated in the movie or I, I read it in a plot summary that Jerry was feeding information to the mob. Is that yeah, revealed in the movie? That's when, like, every time Joe Pantoliano gets a call from De Niro, the Jerry will, like, listen in on it. And then he'll yeah. say, "I have to go get donuts," and he'll go to the payphone across the street. Okay. And he calls so, uh, calls like some of the goons. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I I do remember the and he's the same guy that says like, "Don't forget about me" or something like that after <laughs> after one of those phone calls. Um. So yeah, like none of the phone calls that Jerry w- listened in on would have even happened if uh yep. if he hadn't done that. So like it would have it would have made everything infinitely easier if he had just let De Niro do the job. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, he wanted to save $75,000 in a way that made him lose $450,000. <laughs> yes, yes. It's like he's just taking on more risk, just constantly taking on risk without really thinking about anything. And, like, I kind of get why a character might do things like that. I don't think it's terrible writing, for instance, but, like, it's definitely a stupid character. Yes, yes. And I, I, I like that. I mean, we have our big bad villain, who's Dennis Farina, like the mob boss. So we that we should have our secondary, like, stupid villain type of thing. And he's he's trying. He's a snake. He's trying to cheat people out of money. And he's, you know, putting obstacles in the way of our characters. It's a good, once again, it's comparing to Beverly Hills Cop. Isn't it great to have, like, things happen in a movie? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's a good, that's a good way to describe it. Things don't happen in Beverly Hills Cop. They do happen in this movie. It's it's great. I mean, it definitely makes the whole experience more enjoyable. Like, I don't remember how long Beverly Hills Cop was, but it might have well been four years long because <laughs> it's, it's watching that movie was like watching paint dry with r- really with the same soundtrack as you would get watching paint dry. <laughs> yes. And then every once in a while you hear the theme song. And then right. if you're not hearing the theme song, you hear Eddie Murphy's obnoxious laugh. <laughs> 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 God, that was terrible. Oh, Zach, you would love this. You would. We should. We should watch it. Check it out. <laughs> you, yeah, actually, oh, Zach, God. I think from what I know about your taste in movies, this might be. Oh no! Movie. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if you're being ironic or not. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I'm being ironic. I'm being an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> oh man! Oh man! No. So yeah, Joe Joe Pantoliano's good. Um, speaking of our villain, and you mentioned it before, Zach. I do also agree with you. That last scene at the airport of like the uh, the handoff of the tapes or the disc or whatever they call it, I think whatever it is that is pretty intense. Like that is a nice little bit of tension, and it's not too much. It's not over the top, but it, I think it fits at a little climax of this movie. So it actually reminded me of is Trading Places, like the the kind of detailed setup of how they of how they fuck with the people shorting oranges or whatever oh, the hell is happening. Sure, in yeah. So like. There was I had I definitely got some like similar vibes uh, in terms of of the like level of complexity they were shooting with for the plan. I mean, obviously, trading places was a little more complex, but mm-hmm. it, I, I definitely had like I, I got similar vibes from. from yeah, yeah. Things. And it and, you know, it has it has that that nice little touch of, um you know, when when Dennis Farina has the Duke and we finally get like 
we know he's a bad guy. He's a mob boss. He was this drug dealer back in Chicago that, like, forced Robert De Niro out. But I really do like that little scene in the car where he's, like, very serious saying to the Duke, he's like, I'm going to kill you tonight, and I'm going to go home. I'm going to eat dinner. I'm going to, like, say hi to my wife, and I'm going to go find your wife and kill her too. And it's just it's just so serious. Like, there is no part in that scene that's played for a joke in this action comedy. And you're really like, okay, you know, now we, we get that we really want to take this guy down. Like, he is the mob boss. We've seen him. Because in other scenes, he's, like, talking to Philip Baker Hall as this guy who plays Sidney. And he's like, calm down, have a cream soda, have a sandwich, you know? And he's, like, very flippant about some of this stuff. And then he can turn it on when he's just like, you know, I'm, I'm going to screw you up for stealing money from me. Uh, definitely. I, I kind of, when he was, when he was like saying that stuff, he's like, I'm going to find your wife and kill her. Like I totally expected him to say, I'm going to find your wife and fuck her, but they did not go there. Like, I, I'm just like he's going to be like, I'm going to fuck your wife. Cause that's, you know, that's classic comedy. But instead they were like, I'm, I'm going to murder your wife. And I was like, Oh, that, that is not funny. It's yeah. It's just straight. I mean, yeah, the modern, like update on this would be he's like I'm gonna kill you and then I'm gonna go find your wife I'm gonna fuck her and I'm gonna kill her not necessarily in that order and it would cut back to the duke and he would have like a little confused look like a head tilt and people yeah. would be like that's dark that's dark comedy you know that's what we want and it's like oh maybe he's fucking a dead person you know <laughs> okay so this is totally a, a, a tangent uh, but I gotta mention it because I've come across Uh-oh. this comic that I really enjoy recently um and so like it's a four panel comic it shows a guy in the morning he's like coffee you're my only friend and then it shows like a black cup of coffee and the coffee saying like strangle till strangle her till she dies and he's like whoa 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 that's too dark and he adds a little bit of cream and then the next one's like strangle her strangle her till she comes <laughs> <laughs> oh god <laughs> and he was like just right <laughs> Okay, that that's better. Those the, those, those Folger ads are getting stranger and stranger by the day. <laughs> that's part of waking up. Oh god. Oh yeah. I, that, okay. I, I was I didn't know where you were gonna go with that because I was like I, I talked about necrophilia and then you're like this is a tangent. There's a comic I really like. And I was like, what's Ben been reading? It's a comic about necrophilia. Yes. <laughs> no, but you're you're absolutely right, Zach. I love that that whole little climax, and I love that. Um, once again, it's great. Robert De Niro and our characters face actual obstacles because uh, John Ashton shows up and sees them and almost ruins the whole deal. You know, he, like, messes up the wire. And then, you know, Robert De Niro doesn't know it, so he's saying, like, you know, Serrano's got the tapes, Serrano's got the tapes, and eventually he has to, like, scream it out at the last moment. And it's it's good little tension. It works in this movie. Indeed. Were either one of you surprised that the movie doesn't end with him taking, like, the, like the $300,000 and, like, bring it to, like, his, like, daughter... And like ex-wife, are you guys surprised we didn't get like that like weird tacked-on happy ending? So you're trying to tell me that he was going to show up and be like, "Look at how many cigarettes you can buy now." <laughs> <laughs> that I would no, like that, but but like it's kind of like like my best example would be like what the War of the Worlds ending with Tom Cruise, where like just out of nowhere, like they show up like at like the ex-wife's house. Oh shit! Oh, it's like right. uh, like, it, like and the son is there, though. Like clearly, it's like implied that he died earlier in the film. And it's like I, I kind of expect it. I, I, I kind of find it cute. That, like he goes up to like the cab driver, like, "Can you break a thousand? Yes. And the guy's like, "Yeah, yeah, you're a real comedian." And then he's like, "Well, I guess I'm walking." And like it just like the credits start to roll as we fade out as him just like walking like all like so, out of the airport. I, I would and say I'm, the thing that surprised me about that ending more than that it wasn't a happy ending is that he never fucking put the money away. 
He's just like holding it in his hand the whole time. And I'm like, put that shit in your jacket, dude. Like, fucking hide that shit, you know? The, the daughter's, Zach, is an interesting thing. I was thinking, like, he might go back to the wife. But we have established that the wife married the corrupt lieutenant or whatever. But the daughter would make sense. But that's the thing, though, is that, like, it, there's this – I going back to your saying, like, what is this movie about? It's that, like, oh – the wife like like left him like did, like is there a reason why the w- wife left him are we given a specific reason was well, just um, because he, like his name was mud or that was the impression i got was that it was because he like lost his social standing and and maybe i mean what follows from that like going in, into a depressive spiral because everything you know turned out to be a lie etc cetera, etc cetera. like there's any number of reasons that she could have left him they i don't think they gave us a specific one yeah i don't think so either but that's the thing, like the wife sits there like like leaves like leaves him for a fellow corrupt police officer. And it's like, oh okay. Well, maybe she was corrupt the whole thing. She actually was the ringleader. <laughs> that's what I mean. Like yeah. that feels like it feels like going back to like thinking about all of Martin Breast movies I've watched, you have like all these weird little like side plots like tacked on for no reason. Mm-hmm. That feels like when like just have it like the wife remarried. Like it doesn't need to be like a like a a, a dirty cop. He's like, oh, like the wife like married a nice like I don't know, um, I don't know. He's he's a veterinarian. There's something to be like, oh, like she just wants a normal life. The fact that like, so, you make it like a dirty cop is that like, w- like, wait, what are you getting at? So like in the scene where he confronts her about the dirty cop, like she's obviously somewhat defensive about it, but it it, it didn't come across to me as necessarily that she agrees that her husband is dirty. She's just tired of this guy talking shit about her husband. So like I thought, but isn't it said later in the film? Isn't it kind of alluded to that he's like a crooked, like the new husband, oh, he, is a crooked cop? He no, I mean he says outright that like in yeah. that conversation that that the the guy's a crooked cop. Um, but, but doesn't it, but doesn't isn't there a conversation after that moment with the wife where someone alludes to it as well, like in a much more concrete sort yeah, of way? Yeah, I think it's I think it's oh, when De Niro, yeah De Niro and Dennis Farina are talking in the airport at the end. He says something like. You know, you could have you could have taken the money and stayed with your wife, but instead she's with this this other guy that was on the take. Now he's lieutenant or got promoted or something like that. That's the thing. Like that feels like like not that it's out of place, but it feels like a complete like thread left dangling. And that like oh, that's a pretty big theme that you could like like go with, and you're just leaving it sit there. And I'm like okay, all just so we can have John Ash to be like a bumbling idiot. And it's like, like, no, like after a while, that stick is dumb. Like we don't need more bumbling idiot antics. And that's where I meant it was kind of tedious. Like I would have liked to have seen more of that. Like, like the idea of like, oh, like he got like everybody accuses him of like being like crooked and dirty. And then like, oh, he got replaced by someone that was genuinely like that. So like I would have liked to strip out the bumbling idiot, like competing bounty hunter with, and like infuse that element of the plot a little bit more into the story. That's, that's what I, I'm not saying that would have been better off. I'm just saying I would have preferred that. Sure, that that's interesting though. Now you bring it up because there was no point when I watched this movie that I was I really wanted to know like th- about their relationship because as Zach and Ben know, that's the thing I care about least in the movie because it's just like fuck it. He has a daughter and a family. I don't love him anymore. I don't care. But you're right. They could have had a line where because I think you know they say many times that De Niro had heroin planted on him or somewhere that what really got him in trouble and the wife could have been like you know what do you need money for what do you need this car for like you're just gonna go get more heroin or something like that and he'd be like i told you i got set up and it's like that's not what my new husband says you know he's the one that arrested you or something like that they could have even thrown in a tiny line to set that up for sure or included this new husband is like part of farina's gang 
Yeah, sure, sure. That's the thing. Like, it just feels weird that like you bring that up. You explicitly go to the ex-wife's house. You see, like they have a son. Like, why they need to have like like a son? And you have the daughter there, like Ben said. It's a very dramatic moment where the daughter's like about to like burst out in like tears or like a hate rage, mm-hmm. and just like oh, and like we never see that again. There's no there's no follow up to that. We're being like, like I don't know, like maybe he's like his daughter always wanted him to build a treehouse for her, and he never got the chance to do it. <laughs> so like, like I, I don't know, but it's just like the fact like you have that second moment. My daughter comes running out, and she's like, "But dad, here's all my my babysitting money. Yep. take this." And he's like, and like he goes for it, and then like he hesitates. He's like, "No, I can't do this," and he hugs her again, and it's a much less awkward hug. And it's like, what? It's like this is this is weird. Like I know you like that. It felt more like an un like a. What's the word? It's like a plot beat that was forced into the film and that didn't really need to be there. It's like you don't need him to have that element because at this point, like in the, at that point in the film, we've established that De Niro is like straight, like a, a straight character. Like he's not crooked by any means. And it just felt almost like that's what I meant by tedious, where it's like we like we know this already. We know he's incorruptible. Like, sure, he's doing kind of like the Machiavellian thing of like the ends justify the means, but he's never outright hurting anybody. He's just basically like just passing white lies. I, I see what you're saying, Zach, but I, I definitely think it's in that scene with the wife and the daughter is in service of furthering the relationship between him and the Duke. So they can talk more the about du- the family and stuff like that. Well, and sure, the, and the, the watch doesn't stuff. even have a family. Yeah. But the Duke, I, I guess. But even like the Duke's family, like he has a wife. Mm-hmm. That's it. And a dog. Like that's it. Like that's <laughs> yes, his family. He does have a dog. Like, like, like if you even had a moment earlier in the film where like we see like, like when he sneaks into the Duke's house and like instead of having this like kind of like comical thing where the dog like chases him into like the shower stall, it's like see him, I don't know, sitting down with his family have like more of that element like that's the thing like, this movie's trying to bite off so much and yet like it feels like even though it, it kind of works at the end but like at the end of the day it's like it's it's a it's a buddy story it's not meant to be the story about like how family is all that matters well so i i think that that scene serves that point also like we learn in that scene that for Robert De Niro, his family is not all that matters. In particular, we learn that they don't matter that much. Like, he goes there, and he interacts with them, and then they never come back. And he just walks down the street with $300,000. Exactly! Like, we're, no, we're, getting, we're getting closure for Robert De Niro. We're not, like, reopening a, a, a channel to his family. We're we're getting the book closed on his family in the beginning of his new life at the end of the movie. Yeah, I like is that. What I, it is? I like that. Yeah, I, that that I think that's what I was trying to formulate. But yeah, that's that's what it is. I I don't want him to go back to the family at the end because it's clear that the wife has moved on from that pause with the daughter. Has we, she though? Has she though? Yes, she they fight. The the car they keys. yell at each other in the but scene. But she gives him the car keys and the money. Yeah. But She's because she wants him out of there, she says multiple times, "The new husband's going to be home soon." And I don't want you here. Yeah, and she could have pushed him outside the door and locked it, and there you go. And the daughter could have run out and like, "Here, here, daddy, here's my money." The level of confrontation that she's okay with. Like she might be okay <laughs> yes. with screaming, but yes. when it comes to touching people, like, maybe... and I also think her decision, she is ready to push him out the door. They start fighting. The daughter shows up. She immediately oh. softens because the daughter is there. That, that's sure, actually but like, point. but she gives the, she gives him the keys, and he's like, "Well, what are you going to tell like crooked policeman?" And she's like, "I'll tell him it's in the shop." 
Like she's covering for him. She could just been like, oh, I'll tell him. No, she's covering for herself. She doesn't want the husband to have any knowledge of Robert De Niro in her life. Then she just tell him to leave and not give no, him No, then the daughter shows up. The daughter changes the dynamic of that scene. I think that's what Ben and I are saying. Exactly. Exactly. What do you Like, saying? that's the thing. I, exactly. And that it changed the dynamic and the wife starts to soften towards him. Yes, because of the daughter, not because of Robert De Niro and her not moving past but that's the But that's the connection to him, though, is the daughter. She's always going to be tied to him. No, she she is doing that to not hurt her daughter. She has so she's like she she's helping her help, hu- she's helping her ex husband she's helping her commit a crime dad. to help her daughter she's helping her daughter's dad not get arrested by her new dad <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> I like how you phrase that I like the, I, I that's a, that's what's I going th- on like she if if Robert De Niro sticks around and gets arrested by the new husband then don't then, include then this... that scene they should sit there like you could very easily have changed that. And just what? been like, because like, it's, not, it's not about he family. He could have stolen another car. Include... Yeah. Exactly. The, the, no, exactly. what I'm saying is that scene was about closing the book on his family. And then they, why is there a scene inclu- of the? Then why is there a scene about him with the watch on the train on the on the like uh, box car? At the then end why of the movie, he gives the watch away. Yes, he gives it to the Duke. I know, but at the That's end of the film, but there's another symbol of him closing the book on his family and starting is, is his that... new life. Yeah, because he says he can't take. He never wants to get rid of the watch, even though it has problems. And he finally decides to give it away. I, I, it's a personal I, growth movie. Yes. for Robert De Niro. Yes, it's a personal growth movie, and that he has three hundred thousand dollars that he doesn't know what to do with because the uh, the the other protagonist convinces him not to open a coffee shop. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me because taxis don't accept thousand dollars. <laughs> that, and that's the only thing you could feasibly use that money for. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't want to open a coffee shop. Maybe he wants to open a shooting range. We don't know what his dreams are. But, <laughs> but that's what I mean, know... though. But that's the thing, though. It should have been you either keep the family through line or you get rid of it and install stuff about what he wants to do for the future. So we don't know what he does after that. Like, there's no, like, he just has money so he can do anything. So, like, it's so ambiguous in the worst way. You would have rathered a character who just didn't have a past? Is that what you're like? No, but they should. But but that's the thing though. we have the scene earlier in the film when they're on the Amtrak train. He's talking to him about like, oh, like, like, what do you want to do? And he's like, I like once I get this one hundred thousand, I'm going to sit there like off and open a coffee shop. Like, I would have liked to have seen more of like either you do a pursuit tour. It feels like it's like it's split like, oh, he wants a new future. And then like we have the thing about the past. And then kind of both disappears character. And that, you're like, you're, I think you're giving this movie too much credit if that's your, how you see your it. Your response to, to, to them describing a multifaceted character is that he should have only had one facet? He's not multifaceted. He's a, he's a bounty hunter that just he's, – he's an incorruptible, like, lovable hero. That's, he's that, an incorruptible, that, lovable hero who also happens to scream at his ex-wife. Like that's not just like everybody. That's not that's not anything revelatory. Uh, the way that they're fighting and the way that he's holding on to that anger, that's very different than the rest of his character that we see. So like that scene, it does more than just close the book on his family. It reveals that he is he has other levels. But it's like, his he daughter. He can't. But that's the thing, though. If it's a movie about like family and just stuff like that, though, why is he closing the door on his daughter? He should it's be not about the door. family. It's about him. Yeah. But that, but the daughter is part of him, though. No. <laughs> yeah, definitely now not in the, you... in the in the context of this movie. Absolutely not. You know. Then why include them if that's not you? Do not introduce so somebody's can... estranged child and watch so him have like a low key reconciliation to not touch on that later on in the film. Like so if you that... at the very end of the movie, if you saw him go out to the taxi 
and like he looks and he like looks at the money and we turn around he's like i want a one-way ticket to chicago and like you like and that's the thing like there should have been that like there's that sentimental moment with the daughter outside the house that should have been touched upon at the very end it should have because you, it's you what you're saying is that you want him you to want, have made a different decision he you want decision. him to abandon his child and that's not what somebody who's he incorruptible already does. abandoned his child but, that, yes. but you're the one who says character growth he's learning to sit he's learned that he, that's not the way you do he, things you don't walk away from your problems he's he's learning that his daughter's fine in in the new family that she has and that introducing himself into that but the, uh, scene but the, is but the fact that she but the fact that she comes running out of the house to sit there help him realizes that there's more there the fact that he goes to grab the money and he hesitates and then withdraws his hand that's just because he doesn't want to take money from a child that okay now who's projecting onto the characters I never said you were projecting onto them I said that you wanted him to make a different decision than he did but that's how is that different then projection is normally what you have now, inside now of you you're now you you're okay now, now that's called semantics and what? that's not the. That's what the word projection means. What are you talking about? In the I... sense of that, what we're trying to get from the film and how we're seeing it. I don't think I understand. Rob, do you understand? I think we've gotten off the rails. I think the whole idea. I agree with Ben here, Zach. Him not taking the money from the child is him, in another sense, closing that down. Is saying, you know, like but you can't walk away. That. But somebody he who had, had that turn the money if he if he had taken it. That's yeah. That's how I took it. Yes. But that's the thing, though. You can't walk away from your child, especially if you re-enter their life that way. Like, that was the thing. Like, it's like, okay, I'm never going to see my daughter again because that's how my, my life's my, – that part of my life's over. I'm never going to see my child again. You don't get to have that sentimental gooeyness at the end if, people, if, without touching on that. People make these decisions. Like, that's how it happens sometimes. But like, that's how we go to the movies to see real life reflected to us in a action buddy cop movie. Why not? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting a sense, Zach, that you're talking more about reality and not this movie. The movie should be closed and finite like this. But then don't introduce the daughter character. Then, so you don't have that moment where she comes out of the house and he walks out of the house. The wife has gotten rid of him, and then that's it. It adds depth to his character. Depth to his character that goes nowhere in the end because it's just he's written, he's written off the fact he had. Then don't have a daughter character. Just be he goes to the ex-wife because that's his only resource at the time. And sees that he has that she has a child with her new husband. I I can I can see where you're coming from there. Absolutely, it's a layer of the family. The daughter adds a layer I, of the family. That's what it I mean. It's un- to bring this back to what I was getting at, it felt like an unnecessary layer. And if you, and again, if you're not going to circle back to it, then just cut it out. As we've said, as a major theme with Martin Brest is that he doesn't know how to trim the fat. I see what you're saying a little more there. Absolutely, the daughter didn't need to be in there, but it adds a dimension to the family that. I, I think you would agree with this too, Ben, that the watch at the end doesn't really represent. The watch could have just been the ex-wife and him moving on from the Chicago aspect of his life. Thank yes. you. Finally, someone speaks English. That's, that, I, I, I see what you're getting at, for sure. But I don't, I don't think it, it, is, it detracts in the way that you're saying, Zach, that since we have it, we need to have some other closure. Yeah, I don't I, think like I said, it, it, comes, it comes down to the issue of trimming the fat. And if you're not going to trim the fat, then it has to circle back. That's my final two cents on it. That's fair. That's a, now we're getting into screen screenwriting opinions. I, I, might, I, think. I might disagree. I I don't necessarily want movies to be as clean as they all as they tend to be. Like sometimes open ends and and stuff that's left unresolved is fine in a movie. If that's what you like, Ben, I've got a movie for you. It's called Giggly. You can watch Christopher <laughs> Walken come in and talk about. 
was it Rob Apple Pie eating it through your head? Apple Pie, yeah, yeah. That's that's a, that's a good point. Speaking of him going years later to Gili, that is that is very open ended and stuff. And I'd say more incomplete than open ended. <laughs> like I, I guess that's the thing is I don't feel like this is incomplete. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I I feel like I don't need any more of this. And he closes that chapter of his life, and he does not. When given the opportunity to create a bond that he would have to then come back and fulfill, he chooses not to by not taking the money. And and that, like, I feel like that's complete enough for me. Sure. I hear you. So uh, one of the other scenes that we didn't even mention at all is when um, they run the fake $20 bill scam. Oh, yeah. I, I really love the way that Charles Grodin, the Duke, acts in that scene where he just is, like, running the show. And, you know, he's he's what's he says the the lit litmus or the something counter litmus test or something like that and robert de niro's just like yeah you count counter litmus test or whatever (laughs) (laughs) yeah do the litmus configuration you're doing the litmus configuration litmus configuration yes (laughs) that that's i i really like that moment is when you know he he we see de niro giving a little more trust into the duke and then you know he the Duke is just as kind of conniving as, as De Niro has been the whole movie. And, and the whole stuff, there's that great little bit where he's like, can you describe the person who gave, the, gave you the last $20 bill? He's like, you know, medium height guy? No, tall guy. Brown hair? No, light hair. That's our, that's our man. <laughs> <laughs> Would you describe exactly what the last man who passed the $20 bill to you looked like? 30, tall. About six feet tall? Six five. Dark brown hair. Light colored. Sounds like our man. That's him. There, there are some. I, I wouldn't say this movie is like a laugh riot, but there are some little bits in here that I definitely, you know, chuckled at for sure. And I think, you know, that's kind of what you expect from these kind of earlier movies, late '80s, of course. You know, they don't they don't hit as hard in in all this comedy. It's a little drier, but it's it's good fun. I thought it was it was pretty funny overall. Some of the some of the Duke stuff with him uh, mentioning, you know, telling uh, what's De Niro how to live his life. Where he's like getting at him about cholesterol and stuff like that, and tipping. Some of that goes a little overboard for me. Where I'm just like, I get it. You know, they're trying to. De Niro wants him to shut up, and he's just complaining about everything or nitpicking De Niro. I'm like, I get, I get where they're coming from, but some of that got repetitive for me as well. But thankfully, that goes away near the end of the movie when they become more of a. They actually have that buddy stuff going on, and they kind of know how the other ones operate. And the uh, the accountant, he's like, as your accountant, I would have to tell you not to do that. And he's like, well, you're not my accountant. And I'm like, okay. Well, the, the thing that got me there is, uh, what's his name? The Duke is like, you shouldn't open up a coffee shop. That's a very risky business. And then most of the movie takes place in them going to coffee shops and diners. So it's like, you know, clearly, clearly that we're seeing a lot of them. De Niro's getting some good experience there. <laughs> and I had to mention, I love that we get a $1,000 bill reference at the end. Uh, they were discontinued in 1969. So I don't know. I guess that's what mob... If anybody have them, they would be mob people. And I never mm. knew, because uh, I had to look it up, Grover Cleveland is on the $1,000 bill. Mm. Not that I know what the hell Grover Cleveland did, but... <laughs> Didn't you hate Grover Cleveland in high school? What it, For what? Do you remember? I don't remember. I remember you hated it. I remember once you in high school going on a rant about how Grover Cleveland was like the worst thing that ever happened to like, like, like oh God, U.S. capitalism or something. Like, it was the worst thing because, like, he did something. So I can remember that in high school. You go, like, okay. like a rant and all rants about he was the stupidest person to ever be elected to public office. I would have to go back and look into Grover Cleveland, but I probably don't remember that rant because now I just believe that every politician is in existence is the worst thing to ever happen to America. 
I remember that. That was a very, very emotionally uh, involved brand. <laughs> I just wish it what it was about. I know I had to do about economics. I knew I had sure, to do about that. Sure. So it might be tied in. Like maybe if you like we research the history of the thousand dollar bill, maybe I'll jog your memory. <laughs> the Grover Cleveland bonus episode. <laughs> yes, that's the pay. That's the super duper Patreon level. That's like five hundred dollars a month donation. <laughs> Oh man! I think the only other scene I wanted to mention was um, uh, when Charles Grodin freaks out on the airplane at the beginning. I love his little like he gets real his clearly because he's acting. You know, he starts freaking out and waving his arms and just like moving very strangely. And then he's saying, "These things go down. These things go down. It's too big. It can't go up." <laughs> and it's a double decker airplane, which is very interesting to see because the pilot comes down from stairs when he tries to see what's going on. That's right. Yeah, he does. Yep. It's like a spiral staircase. That's pretty interesting. And the what they have like a whole spread in in first class where they're sitting in front of them, and it's just like, man, what a time to be alive. <laughs> the question is, though, I guess maybe we should save this for later, though. But which would which is worse, the airplane uh, steak or the airplane lobster? <laughs> Do you think even like airplane food could have been good back then? Do you think it was like higher quality? I, I don't know how – God, considering that like steak and lobster are two things that you kind of want like prepared in the moment. Yeah. I don't know what that would be like like reheated like in a 1980s microwave would taste like. <laughs> like what would reheat like, – like reheated lobster is like one of the worst things ever. Like just straight up – unless you're like – unless it's like oh, something God. like in like, like a bisque or something. Like, sure. Like – yeah, good lord, I can't imagine that. Oh, I just now I'm let just me, imagining let me some leftover lobster. Now I'm just imagining like a stewardess just taking a whole lobster, putting it in a microwave, <laughs> and like putting it on like four minutes, and then just and then just handing it to somebody on an airplane. <laughs> yeah, that's I don't oh. I don't know too much about uh, airplane food. <laughs> All right, Rob, do a Google search right now in real time. Air, airplane lobster. <laughs> that's what I live for. <laughs> I'm going to order it off Amazon, Airplane Lobster. All right. Dib- dibs the Simadi's restaurant is the menu item. Dibs. Well, the first thing that came up is is something called How to Pack Your Lobster, A Foodie's Guide to Airplane Travel. Oh, this is about how to tr- transfer live lobsters <laughs> on an airplane. That's great. Okay, That's interesting. Great. Interesting. That's an article I'll have to check out later. <laughs> Rob's like, you have my attention, Internet. That, yeah, okay. You just put it in a suitcase. <laughs> from the so TSA TSA.gov live lobster carry on bags check with the airline checked bags yes <laughs> <laughs> oh my god now I just want to see like you go and you check your bag and be like any uh any uh I don't you know they ask you like any items to declare or anything like that and be like there's about 16 live lobsters in there <laughs> If you could be careful with it, that'd be greatly appreciated. <laughs> That's actually why it's leaking. Uh, couldn't get a waterproof seal, so there's just <laughs> lobsters in water. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. Okay, I mean the things you the things you can bring on airplanes. That's going to be the next thing is a lobster bomb. They're gonna someone's gonna try and bring <laughs> a lobster bomb on a plane, and they're gonna they're gonna ban us from traveling with our with our lobsters. <laughs> the true uh, success are the snakes on a plane, lobsters on a plane. <laughs> oh man! Oh man! Okay, well, I guess uh, any other scenes or anything you guys want to talk about with uh, Midnight Run? Our main character takes out a helicopter with a handgun. That Not much to say about it, but <laughs> maybe should be brought up. 
<laughs> oh, sure. I, I definitely had a thought when that happened that I was like, that's a little goofy. And then I thought of every action movie that came after The Fast and the Furious, and I said, this is probably tame by those standards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, even thinking of Bloodshot, Ben, some of the crazy action that happened in that, you know? Just like, okay, Robert De Niro wants to shoot the, the tail of a uh, airplane with a pistol and, and take it out. Fine, right. you know? Vin Diesel had to, like, what, flip a car 16 times to kill Toby Kevill and, and shit like that. And all that nonsense with the flower. So I, I, could, I could get behind. But you're right, he does, he does have a little, like, action stunt hero type of thing, for sure. I just like the fact he, like, shoots, like, what, the uh, the tail propeller, like, off, and the thing just starts kind of, like, losing control, and then immediately it, like, crashes into, like, the cliffside, and it bursts into flames. Yeah. I can just oh, stand, ex- like, three it seconds. Exploded. It yeah. was, it yeah, was it's, a complete it's, explosion, yeah. It's like, man, that escalated quickly. <laughs> yeah, those uh, those dudes are not making it out of there. <laughs> or that dude. I have liked it. Like, after that happens, like, De Niro just looks at the pistol, like, empty, and just looks up, like, looks down, looks up, looks down. It's just like... Huh. And just turns around back to Charles Grove. I, I did that. <laughs> I'm killing people that, now. That just happened. Now I'm a killer. Yep. <laughs> yeah, anything anything else? Any minor scenes? I don't I think I got all the ones. We talked about the animals having sex. We had to get that in there. Or having sex with animals. <laughs> all right. I guess here's the million dollar question though. Was that written in the script or was that like ad libbed on set? The only thing I could specifically find about that came from the bastion of truth known as IMDb Trivia. And it apparently, Charles Grodin was directed to say something so crazy that it would uh, he would be attempting to make Robert De Niro laugh. Oh. That's IMDb Trivia. No corroboration I could find because I was very interested mm. in that as well. Mm-mm. It's not in that Playboy article that you found last year. No, it is. It is not. <laughs> that, that, there should have been a section, yes, in the Playboy article about the uh, you ever have sex with an animal, Jack? <laughs> okay, well then, I guess before we get to our questions, before we get to our snacks, before we get to that stuff, it's time ranking the Martin Brest films. Well, before we can even rank them, that's coming up. I have to talk about the other two. That came after this. And of course there are three, but we're not going to discuss Gili again because Zach and I did that back on episode 99. But I did watch Scent of a Woman and Meet Joe Black. Five and a half hours of goddamn movie. <laughs> That's what I did this past week. Scent of a Woman comes out next, of course, and I think this is the famous one. This is a huge success for Martin Brest. It gets him uh, his Best Picture and Best Director nomination at the Oscars. It loses to Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, which I have no goddamn idea what that is. So, I that's, guess. The, that's the movie where like he's like the cowboy back in the saddle, like after being like out of it for so long. Oh, okay, okay. I've never, I don't think I've heard of that, seen it. So, of course, uh, Scent of a Woman is the movie where Al Pacino wins the Oscar for Best Actor, and he just kind of goes off the rails after that. I think. So, I I don't know if you guys have seen this movie, Ben. I'm assuming you've. Never seen Scent of a Woman where Chris O'Donnell has to, like, take care of blind Al Pacino for a weekend in New York? No, I don't think okay. so. Zach, I know we talked about it. Have you seen it before? No. Okay, so I thought I had seen it. When I started watching it, I was like, maybe I haven't seen this. Or uh, for some reason, I thought I watched it a really long time ago. But I had to get through it. You know, it's, it's two and a half hours long. So it's half an hour shorter than Meet Joe Black. Um, I watched it. There's a lot of stuff that's, you know, pretty goofy. Like you have that Martin Brest uh, ideas in there, the weirdness that we've been talking about. I am very, very surprised to say 
Scent of a Woman is kind of fantastic. I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. Because the actual premise of the movie is that Chris O'Donnell is on, like, Thanksgiving break from his, uh, from Baird College. And he takes a job as, like, a, a care person for Al Pacino, who's, who's blind. And Al Pacino, like, takes him on this trip to New York. And it turns out that Al Pacino wants to, like, go on this last weekend trip and then kill himself. And the, oh. and the movie becomes very much about, like, you know, dealing heavily with the force of mortality in Al Pacino and paralleled with Chris O'Donnell. He's facing, like, um, some, like, disciplinary action at, the, at his school. Um, like, him facing the loss of his future with Pacino being like, I'm older, I don't have a future. It is a really, really interesting movie. And I have to say, Al Pacino's performance is fantastic. Like, it makes the movie not feel like two and a half hours. And I was very surprised to think this. And uh, very pleasantly surprised. Some little moments I wanted to mention. Al Pacino, speaking of which, uh, when they get to New York, he's asking Chris O'Donnell to take a, uh, like a, an inventory of the liquor cabinet because they're in like some suite. And Chris, and Chris O'Donnell's like, there's a bunch of like small bottles and stuff. And Al Pacino tells him, clean out those small bottles and have it restocked with John Daniels. And Chris O'Donnell goes, don't you mean Jack Daniels? And Al Pacino responds with, maybe to you, son, but when you've known him as long as I have, he's John. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, that's a pretty fun line. Right on. As, he, as they're leaving for New York, Al Pacino has a cat in, like, the first scenes. They don't take it to New York. But as he's leaving, the cat, like, goes up to him. Al Pacino picks up the cat and says, when in doubt, fuck. To the cat. Yeah. Remember, when in doubt, fuck. Like he says it directly <laughs> to the cat as he's holding it, and I'm like, oh my god, I love it. <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. And the other thing I wanted to mention, there, Philip Seymour Hoffman is in this, and he is incredibly young. Of at least you know when I've seen him in the in the 2000s, he's much younger than that. But he has the same exact voice that he has as we know him with Zach, and it is very, very interesting. So, Zach, I would have to say, Scent of a Woman is pretty good. I was not expecting to feel that way. I think it gets back at that, that you know, dealing with death that we talked about in, like, uh, Hot Tomorrows and Going in Style. It was, it was mm. pleasantly surprising. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and like I said, it, uh, the best thing about it is that at two and a half hours, it did not feel that way. It, it actually felt like a... Uh, a a decent length movie. Like it kept me going. So Martin breast, you get another kind of plus in, in my category, <laughs> but then it is followed up with, Oh my God. Meet Joe black. Brad Pitt oh doing God. a Jamaican accent. Oh my God. I was just waiting for that part in the movie. Cause of course, as our, as our Knights of Vader and audience, Cinemati's audience knows prior to watching this movie, I had only seen the last 90 minutes. Zach had seen the first 90 minutes uh, we talked about how you got to get some good pictures in your head, man. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Meet Joe Black. I, I, still, I still stand by what I said in our Knights of Vader discussion on Meet Joe Black. It is not a good movie, but there's a lot to talk about with it. Now that I've watched the entirety of the film, it is so goddamn awkward and excruciatingly <laughs> bad. Like it, I, I texted Zach when I was watching because it's a three-hour movie. What I think I texted you, Zach, something like I, I finally got to the part that I had seen before, and I still have like seventy-five minutes to go. Right? <laughs> I was like, I feel like I've been watching this for four years, and I still have seventy-five minutes to go. It's so it's so awkward. Then you have Jeffrey Tambor saying, "I love little girls" in a very longing tone, and I'm like. 
How can a movie that's so incredibly awkward get incredibly awkward in a different way? This is impossible. <laughs> Brad Pitt is good looking in this movie because he's young and he's Brad Pitt. So, you know, take that. Claire Forlani is disgusting Beautiful. in this movie, Zach. Beautiful. She... Nothing short of incredible. Second, maybe only Maya Mitchell. See, she can. Oh, no, the squirrel. Claire Forlani's <laughs> better looking than a physical squirrel. I can tell you that. <laughs> Um, no, but Claire Forlani, she whispers the whole movie. She can't keep yeah, her eyes wide that. open. That? Do you remember that from when we did our Meet Joe yeah, Black? Yeah. You turned the volume so loud and you started screaming at the TV that your neighbor had to ask you if you're okay. It's one of the only times my neighbor texted me asking me if I was okay because my TV was so loud because I couldn't hear this one actress in the movie. And that's just the case. Like, no amount of audio changing with my system or even on my computer makes her audible. She got bit by a tsetse fly before recording this movie, filming this movie, and got African sleeping sickness. Like, she is on the verge of death by African sleeping sickness. That's the only way I can describe her performance. And years later, Jennifer Jason Lee says this, sees this and goes, that's what I'm going to do every movie. I'm going to be asleep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have to say, Shots fired. There, are, there are some uh, redeeming qualities uh, Brad Pitt getting hit by the two cars at the beginning. That is the most delightful moment in cinema. That ever. is a fantastic little scene. It's so ridiculous. Just the butter. You know, Brad Pitt as death <laughs> falls in love with peanut butter. And as, as everybody knows, I love me a good, unsexy sex scene. And oh boy, does this movie have it. When, when Brad Pitt has sex with Claire Forlani. I guess so you know, Ben, Brad Pitt... His body is inhabited by death, and death, like, wants to live in the real world for a little bit. So death has sex with a woman, and it looks like death does not enjoy it. <laughs> like, it is so uncomfortable. Like, it is so unsexy, and it's great. It's another fantastic unsexy sex scene. But overall, meet Joe Black. Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. That movie is excruciating. If anybody ever wants to do Meet Joe Black for a podcast, find as many people as you can. Because two, Zach and I had to split it up into 90-minute chunks. Like, get six people. Do 30-minute chunks. Like, oh do not watch this movie for that long. Like, it is so excruciatingly bad. <laughs> well, Rob, I have to ask, which part, now that you've seen the entire film, which part of the film do you think is better, the first half or the second half? Like, do you, like if you could go back, <laughs> would you prefer you watch the first half of it, or are you happy you only have to watch the latter half? That's an interesting question. I think I might have to say the second half because it's so confusing when you don't have a lot of that set up. And that made it fun for me. Like, but, but then also I think the conversation added a lot of fun to it because I remember me going, well, for some reason Brad Pitt goes to a hospital and runs into a Jamaican woman and he starts doing a Jamaican accent. And I'm like, that made no sense to me. And I was like, was that set up in the beginning, Zach? And you're like, basically not. He meets a Jamaican woman and does a Jamaican accent at her. <laughs> Yeah, so so Ben, this Jamaican woman can, like, tell that he's deaf, and she's like, no, he's come for me, don't let him get me. And Brad Pitt, who's speaking in his normal voice the whole movie, just goes, I, I'm not here for you, man, I'm here for the lady doctor. And I, it's just like, what? And every time he speaks to her, he does a really weird Jamaican accent. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's a type of performance that makes you wonder how Brad Pitt still has a career. Yes, yes. Like, it is – oh, God, it is so weird. And I do have to say another shout-out from our Knights of Vader discussion, which uh, Zach I don't think has seen, but we talked about it. The uh, the big climax of the movie where they get <gasps> bad businessman. Uh, I – don't do it, Joe. Am, am. No, Joe, don't do it. 
an agent of the IRS. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, Anthony Hopkins is screaming at him to, like, because he thinks he's going to tell this dude that he's deaf. And it's, it, I didn't know this until I rewatched the first, I saw the first half, that Joe, Joe Black, at death, he says, like, if anybody knows I'm deaf, we're just going to cut this short and I'm going to take you to the afterlife. So there's a reason Anthony Hopkins should be upset. But he, it's the weirdest thing where he's just like, I, oh my God, am, don't do it. An agent of the IRS. Oh, yeah, I knew that. And it, like, it diffuses so fast. It deflates like a lead balloon, and it's the weirdest thing. <laughs> the time has come to tell you who I am. So tell me. Tell me. I'm peeing in my pants. And you're going to pee some more. Joe, don't do this. It's okay, Bill. It's time we put this person in his place. It's not necessary, Joe. Drew's going to step aside not stepping anywhere. I appreciate your gentlemanliness, but what we need to do here is drive the dagger home. The dagger? I told you to shut up. Prepare yourself, Drew. I... Joe, please. Bill, kind of let me take it from here. Am... Don't. An agent for the Internal Revenue Service. Bill? Huh? Bill. Bill. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Beautiful. Oh god, it's a it's a movie for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so with that out of the way, of course Geely is his last movie. We've Would discussed... you say that people were employed in the making of that movie? Yes, I don't think they want to be associated <laughs> with that now, but yes. <laughs> Did we do we ever find a TV edit of Meet Joe Black that's like two hours long? Yeah, I think we discussed it or something like that. And I, that might have come up. I think that was Alan Smithied as well, along with Center yeah. Woman, because Martin Brest is a, a madman and thinks that that movie needs to be three hours long. Oh, that's right. The, the, we talked, I remember talking about how the TV edit cuts out the entire business subplot. Yeah, something like that. And we were curious how that works. Yeah, it's just the, the death with Anthony Hopkins stuff and just the butter and, and having unsexy sex with Claire Forlani. Rob, there's no such thing as an unsexy sex with Claire Forlani. <laughs> when Brad Pitt looks that uncomfortable, it's, it's definitely unsexy. <laughs> so I have gone through them all. I've seen all of seven uh, Martin Brest's feature-length films. This is once again... My uh, my reach out to the audience to say, somebody tell me how I can watch Hot Dogs for Gogan, his short film, and I will have everything he's ever done. But it is time for me to rank the Martin Brest films. And I'm going to go, of course, as always, in ascending order. So we'll start with the worst and go up to the best. And to nobody's surprise, number seven is Beverly Hills Cop. This is an objectively terrible movie, and everybody who made this movie a success back in the 80s should probably be canceled today. Like, this should be the equivalent of finding old, like, people's old tweets and getting them canceled and fired from stuff. Like, we should be like, oh, you bought a ticket to Beverly Hills Cop in the 80s? You saw it twice? Canceled. (laughs) (laughs) Number six, I think also not surprisingly, Meet Joe Black. There's stuff to talk about, but it is excruciatingly difficult to actually get through it to have the things to talk about. (laughs) No, I would say those are the only two movies I really don't like. Um, so now we're getting in the territory of movies I like, and I have to split them up based on, this is of course where my personal preference comes in. Number five, I'm actually going to go with Midnight Run. Like, this is a fun movie, I, th- I thoroughly enjoy it, 
but I think uh, in terms of Martin Brest, you know, this action comedy, he does better with this sense of, of mortality that I really enjoy. So number five is Midnight Run. Number four, I'm actually going to say Going In Style. Martin Brest's, not the remake. Do not watch the one with Morgan Freeman. If you turn on Going In Style and you see Morgan Freeman and Michael Caine, you are watching the wrong movie. I have to reiterate that. <laughs> Number three, the biggest shock to me on my rankings, Scent of a Woman. Like I said, I actually thoroughly enjoyed it, and I would probably check it out again after a while. Now, here we go. Here we go. This is, this is the one. These are the two. I, okay, Hans, if I may interject. Okay. I, I, I'm curious how you're going to do this. Because there's a sincere way to do this, and then there's like the ironic way you could do this. Okay. And well, there's, yeah, there's only two know, movies left. Technically, so. <laughs> I would call, like, if I was giving this ranking, like, A, I don't disagree with anything other than the fact that Meet Joe Black is way too low down. <laughs> but I feel it should be like almost a, a, a tie. Because I think both are master, both are, well, I think Zeely is a masterpiece, but for a completely unintentional reason. But I think Hot Tomorrow is just as genius, but for a different reason. Like, they're both great, but for two wildly different reasons. I am glad you bring this up, Zach, because this is what I was battling myself. These, of course, the two movies I have left are his first and his last. They they are both so fantastically interesting, but Zach, you hit the nail on the head, for entirely different reasons. So, the... I was thinking about doing some type of tie, but I couldn't bring myself to do that. I had to rank them. There and is so, a correct answer to this, by the way. There should be a tie, but there is a correct answer. <laughs> okay, okay. Zay, I, I will, think we both know what it is. I, and so I, I, after much deliberation, my number two is Gili. Oh, Absolute academic wimp. exercise. You wimp. You took the sincere route out. Absolutely. Because Gili, everybody should see. As an academic exercise, it is such a fascinating movie just to see how how something like that can exist. It's an anomaly. But number one, I had to go with Hot Tomorrows. Hot Tomorrows is one of the most, like, mentally stimulating movies I've seen in a while. It's so visually creative. It is a fantastic piece of filmmaking and art. I would watch that constantly. And that last scene with that dance number is the perfect encapsulation to that film. Hot Tomorrows is absolutely fantastic. I'm just so upset that only six people have ever seen it in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am I am disappointed it's, by these. It rankings. was tough. No, you're I not wrong. Disappointed that it was because real Gili should be number one because Gili is a. It, you're never going to get another Gili again. Like you're you're going to get another auteur independent weirdo film you're never gonna get another Gili. never oh, it's it was it was tough it was tough it was tough zach one of them revolt rob are we going to the bay watch we watch hot tomorrows <laughs> i think we all know the correct answer no but uh we're going to a lot are of other get, places are we get apple pie through our heads when we watch hot tomorrows i'm the man that says everything twice and then al pacino proceeds to say nothing twice <laughs> Yes. Are we going to get like collagen injections in our buttocks while oh, watching God. Hot Tomorrows? Everybody check out Gili and Hot Tomorrows. <laughs> At least one well one, one you can't can find check out Hot Tomorrows automatically should be disqualified. Nobody can reason. check out Hot Tomorrows because it doesn't exist. Nobody can check out Gili because I think people are blacklisting it. <laughs> yes. That, that's the thing though. You can like Hot Tomorrows cannot be number one because it is not accessible to anyone. No, you like, know, can I don't something take that into place account. ranking if it does not exist. And my number zero is hot dogs for <laughs> Gauguin, which literally is not findable. <laughs> 
There you go. Except Mubi, who might have it, right? One, well, they just, they have it listed. They just keep saying it's not in their library currently. It is or it isn't? Is not. If it was, I would fucking have that shit ready to go. We would have discussed it. But you know how that works, though, right? Oh, yeah, the whole 30-day thing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I check, it, like, it every few weeks. It might show up eventually. I know, it I'm might hoping. show up. I'm hoping. I'm gonna, like, you know, hostage-style the Mubi headquarters and tell them to put it on. I don't, I'm not even going to request their, like, copy of it. I'm just going to request they put it on their surface. <laughs> Rob, Rob's going to handcuff himself to their corporate headquarters yes. and refuse to, and, like, throw the key into the gutter. That's going to be my protest in 2021, and I want to see hot dogs for gone. So, yes, that's my <laughs> rankings. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop, then Meet Joe Black, then Midnight Run, then Going in Style, then Scent of a Woman, then Gigli, then Hot Tomorrow's. Martin Brest... I don't think he's my favorite director that we've covered on Cinemodities. I think that still goes to Paul Bartel. But man, Martin Brest, you are so interesting as a career. And I'm glad we got to do this. I guess that brings us now back to Midnight Run and our questions. So, uh, Cinemodities and Late Night, I think I'm going to throw it over to you first, Ben. Because I remember what we did for uh, (laughs) Beverly Hills Cop and how much hate we had for that throughout the episode and in our questions. But now with uh, Midnight Run, what do you think? Cinemodity, no. Late Night, sure. I I would watch this with somebody i might suggest that somebody watched it yeah okay okay i think i'm gonna i'm gonna partly echo that i definitely think no for cinemodities you know it's a action comedy road movie that's that's good fun but that's really it um i'm gonna say the same thing for you as late night but i would actually emphasize it to a hell yeah because i think it is good fun and you know if you say it's it's good to watch it keeps you going there's some comedic moments and it's uh, i think something that people should check out you know it's a it's a good Nice, nice little movie, <laughs> even though it's my number five on the rankings. It's still good. Zach, what do you think? I'm going to say no across the board. Okay, okay. Why not for late night? Uh, I don't think there's really – I find it too tedious. Like oh, I said, I think sure, we, okay. it spins its wheels a lot of the time, and that can become a detriment when it comes to the late, late night viewing experience. I hear you. I hear you. Well, then – our snacks, our restaurant. Before I get into snacks, I do, I do want to mention something we brought up briefly before. Uh, the scene where De Niro tells the Duke that he wants to open the coffee shop, and Charles Grodin says that the restaurants are a tricky business, so he would advise against it. Screw you, Duke! The Cinemodities restaurant is going strong, okay? We were able to do it. Don't talk down to Robert De Niro like that. All he needs is an infinite void of space, and he'd have the best coffee shop in the world. <laughs> I, I think we all are in agreement for one snack for this movie. We have another instance where we put cigarettes on the menu. <laughs> Goddamn right. I, and so, of course, as it's become uh, standard on Cinemodities, whenever we add cigarettes to the menu, it is just listed as cigarettes. But for each movie we, we pitch it for, it's a separate listing on the menu. So cigarettes show up on different pages all over the menu. <laughs> May, may I ask, just to kind of give another layer to this, considering that it's been on the menu a couple times, is there a way how we, like, do we, how do we present the cigarettes? Like, is it, like, in a pack? Is it a Lucy? Um, how, how do we deliver this to the customer? <laughs> is it a Lucy? It's, uh, it's a whole carton of cigarettes, unpacked. It's a, it's, <laughs> it's a pyramid of loose cigarettes. Okay. <laughs> I like that. I get behind that for sure, you know? <laughs> My my actual note for this one was cigarettes, 
again. <laughs> I think we're up to seven or eight the last time I checked how many movies right. we have cigarettes do, from. Yeah. Just do a control F in the spreadsheet, Rob. Yeah, I remember there was one time I put a little correction because I was like, I think we have six, but it was only four, and that was oh, like a year and a half ago, I think. <laughs> so we've we've added quite a bit of cigarettes. Um, I think the other low-hanging fruit that I'm going to take because I uh, I actually like this type of food and Charles Grodin just openly talks about it in one scene, Leonay's potatoes, a real food item for the restaurant. What a time to be alive. <laughs> Solid. Uh, I have some others, but I actually didn't have too many for this. But uh, what did you guys think for snacks? It's It's more of an attraction. Sure. I think that we should let people shoot at helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> Would it would it be like a car, like a carnival type game where the helicopter comes across and they gotta take it out type of thing? Yeah, and there's probably other customers in the helicopters. And those I'm pretty customers sure they're given free cigarettes. I like the other customers in the helicopter right there. That's that's a neat idea. Where it's some people like, oh, I gotta get you know from this chunk of the restaurant to this chunk of the restaurant. And then they get on the on the helicopter and they're going and they start like hearing gunshots and they gotta hope that they don't get taken out. <laughs> totally. All right. May may, may I add uh, include an add on to Ben's attraction? Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, go for it. Okay. okay. Uh, in precedent, because it's funny, this timely. Like, I was listening to something about a Disney attraction. And Rob's heard me just talk about this a lot. Extraterrestrial alien encounter presented by like george lucas so i want to take ben's idea and whatever we're going to officially call it whether the helicopter riding attraction and it'll say presented by the genius of john landis because <laughs> i figure nobody knows how to make a helicopter crash better than john landis oh my so. oh my uh, <laughs> bringing it all together we go to john landis and be like mr landis we want to have a meeting with you he's like okay we have this restaurant we have an attraction in mind about downing a helicopter full of people we need your expertise nobody on this planet is better at this than you and he's like i finally found my calling in life i would, I would go one of two ways 99.9 percent .9 chance he gets very angry with us and storms out of the meeting 0.1 percent chance he says you need to make sure the heads get removed <laughs> <laughs> It's not successful unless there's a decapitation. <laughs> is it, he asked too. He's like, is it at night? Is it past curfew? <laughs> of course, Mr. Are we are we breaking curfew? industry laws? Are we breaking state laws? What's the situation here? <laughs> what, what are the laws with minors? Where's the age cutoff? Oh God, no, that's that's good. Okay, we're bringing helicopters down. I like that. And because yes. um, remember in Dread, we had the people falling off the skate park onto tables and stuff like that. So there's like bodies raining from the ceiling in the restaurant. There's helicopter debris raining from the ceiling of the restaurant. This is this is becoming an even more dangerous place every week in a new and fun way. <laughs> oh man, uh, what else? Anything don't, else you guys cool. had? I don't know. This wasn't like a real snack heavy movie. To yeah, me. yeah. Um, there was a couple in there. I was surprised by how many food items. Like he had like what was it? The Mexican sausage with the like the scrambled the egg. Ch chorizo. Yeah, all the diner yeah. scenes and stuff. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Coffee. <laughs> so much coffee. The cream soda that uh, Dennis Farina mentions have a cream soda and relax. Yeah. So There's a lot. I'd there say there was some food. I I didn't really take any of those. I think the only one that was like food that we saw that I wanted to throw in was um when uh what John Ashton gets pulled back in like when the when um Joe Pantoliano calls him to like get the duke and screw up the shit with Robert De Niro. We see John Ashton like have another 
prisoner or bail jumper that he's trying to take in in like a hotel room. And he's just eating like burgers and fries while laying on the bed. And it was a very weird position. And there was also like two burgers in his container. And so I'm like, hey, he's having dinner. You know, he's just for some reason laying down in like a, a like a paint me like one of your French girls positions while eating it as well. <laughs> so I was thinking we have like that fast food type stuff like burgers, fries, wings, because De Niro's eating wings in the next scene. But they get to eat them while laying in a bed. So we could add okay. like to our booths and tables. And Ben, I know we've added coffins you can eat in before. We add beds to that as well. You can lay down and eat food in your bed. <laughs> I think much like how Charles Grodin like starts like harassing uh, Robert De Niro when he's eating his chicken wings, I think we should have a dietitian that comes like much like the the, the kid, the middle schoolers that walk around calling people. <laughs> I think we should have a dietitian that sits down at your table and explains to you how unhealthy your meal is and how it's going to harm you. Oh yeah, that's a good idea. I I like that. Because we would have someone who can actually give them information when they're eating real food. But when somebody gets like the, I don't know, the, the, meal, the meal at the restaurant that's filled with shards of glass, they could even comment on that, you know? <laughs> yes. Like, like, why the are human body that? is not capable of digesting glass. <laughs> Do you know what that stuff does to your insides? Clogs up my arteries? No, it will literally <laughs> lacerate your intestines if it even makes it to your intestines. <laughs> it kills you. You're not... We're not supposed to eat that. <laughs> and the customer's I, like, what not? What in this restaurant won't kill me? <laughs> the uh, Leonese potatoes. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, well, I think if there's, uh, if there's no other snacks that we have. I do, want, I, do want, I do want to mention I do want the airplane lobster and steak. That should be there. We don't know what it is, but I want, I want oh, to know what yes. airplane lobster tastes like. Yes, I want, I want a, a whole lobster microwave for four minutes. See what happens to <laughs> That sounds good to me. Or I'm just down. a steak. Yeah, just a just a steak microwaved. <laughs> I'll even try it. Gordon Ramsay would love this restaurant, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> Has he ever gone on Shark Tank, Rob? Like I feel like Gordon Ramsay is shooing for something like that. No, I don't think so. I haven't seen Shark Tank. I haven't seen the later seasons though, so we need to do that. We have to figure out this we have to like create like a like a cross promotional thing with like Shark Tank and like Gordon Ramsay nonsense and then get on an episode, <laughs> just go in there with our huge elaborate pitch for the Cinematis restaurant. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Goddamn Shark Tank. So that brings us to the close of the wonderful Martin Breast series. We hope that everybody goes out and watches the Martin Breast movies that they can. <laughs> I think that brings us to saying that next week we are kicking off, finally, we've been talking about it, the fort year. We are going to be discussing, well, how did these movies directly cause 9-11? Because we know that 9-11 was caused by the uh, infidelity of the uh, the infidels in the, in the Hollywood industry, of course. Um, Zach, I don't know if you want to say what we're discussing next week, or you'll kind of keep this like on a, a, a little secret week-to-week basis. Part of me kind of just wants to lay it all out because it's one of the very few times that I'm actually married to what we're doing. <laughs> like, it's not like Monstober where, like, every week could be something different where Rob's getting basically text messages, like, the day before being like, nope, nope, I'm not doing this. I've changed it again. I don't know. I, I, I guess I should say it's 2001's, ha, 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 Sugar and Spice, a movie that doesn't exist. Yes, yes. That's a – I've only seen that once when I was really young, and I remember it being pretty crazy, so it'll be good to revisit. <laughs> James Marston's in it. And more bank robbery, so it matches up with going in style. So Perfect. We'll take it. Perfect. We'll take it. So with that being said, uh, of course, 
feel free to complain on the Cinemodity subreddit why we spent a month on Martin Brest. Uh, you can also feel free to ask me where to actually find Hot Tomorrows so you can become the seventh person to see it in history. <laughs> uh, as always, jump on over to the Cinemodities Patreon, patreon.com slash Cinemodities, to hear Ben and I screaming about uh, some interesting stuff. Something ha- something happened this month on Patreon. <laughs> go go and check it out. And then, of course, feel free to harass us uh, through email at cinemodities at gmail.com. Uh, you can send us recommendations there. I've gotten a few good ones that I've checked out. We probably won't do an episode on it, but I always like, I know Zach doesn't seem to, he only wants to show off his Tron action figures to Maximo. There's some good stuff that people have sent me, so absolutely. I guess with that being said, any uh, any final thoughts, or are you ready to say, I think easily, the outro credits music in reverse from Midnight Run to, to close us out? Well, I think that's all I got. Right on, right on. And once again, I will make sure that the Beverly Hills theme does not get mixed in because it is cancer. <laughs> I'm cutting that. That's, I'm going to bleep that out. <laughs> <laughs> A seven-second long bleep. <laughs>